Thanks, Open Live, for joining us online today. Exciting times uh, to jump into a new series called Win the Day. I'm pumped about this book by Mark Batterson and just really what it draws us into discovering some habits that are going to be so healthy. Hey, let me share uh, something with you. April 20th, 1913, Sir William Osler delivered a speech at Yale University. And it was a simple message. Here's the cliff notes. Live in day-tight compartments. Live in day-tight compartments. Now, that's easier said than done, but if you can pull it off, if you can uh, put it into practice, it'll be the solution to a thousand problems. Because according to psychologists, Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert, the average person spends 46.9% of their time thinking about something other than what they're doing in the present moment. So, you know, in other words, you're living in the wrong time zone. You're thinking of, of your past. You're thinking of your future. We're depressed about what happened in the past or anxious about what's coming in the future. We're distracted, frustrated, uh, overwhelmed at times. And uh, the reason is we're only half alive because we're not really present, 46.9%. If you want to be fully alive, you have to be fully present. And the only way to be fully present is to live in day-tight compartments. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, but it's not just a good idea. This is a God idea to live in day-tight compartments. Give us this day our daily bread. Take up your cross daily and follow me. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. His mercies are new every morning, right? Each day is a new day. The idea of living in daytight compartments is a thread that's woven throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And here's the bottom line quote that just has resonated with me since I picked up Win the Day. Yesterday's history, tomorrow's mystery. Our job is to win the day. What if we could win the day? What would be possible? I have no idea what goal you might be chasing after this year, uh, what problem you're trying to solve, what habit you're trying to develop or break, uh, but it's going to happen one day at a time. That's how we make progress. We have to win the day, then you have to get up the next day and do it again. And if you do, that's what I call winning streak, right? We just need to go day by day by day. And here's what's gonna go down the next seven weeks at Open Life. We're gonna walk through each of seven daily habits inside this book, Win the Day. And, and we're gonna unpack these, which are richly rooted in scripture and they're going to come alive through story and they're going to help you stress less and accomplish more whatever you're trying to pursue let me plant a seed of faith right up front that i think will bring so much encouragement you can accomplish anything that you set your mind to anything before you you can accomplishment there's nothing that is beyond your ability you can do more than you imagine because you serve the God that does immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. 
I mentioned it again a couple weeks ago, but 80% of New Year's resolutions failed by February 1st, according to U.S. News & World Report. That is crazy. 80% of the goals, of the objectives, because they were in view of a one-year timeline. That was their objective. It's like, man, okay, by next year, I want to do this or that or this or that. It's overwhelming. And, it's, and we find ourselves throwing in the towel and quitting early. So the question that we're going to revisit during this series is not what can you do in a year. It's can you do it for a day? Can you do it for a day? Pick a habit, any habit. Can you do it for a day? And here's the good news. The only ceiling that exists for you and in between you and even your intimacy with God is the impact of daily spiritual disciplines right now, today. Uh, if you do the right things day in, day out, I believe God is going to show up and show off. That's what he does. And we are going to pursue that in. Man, Vladimir Lenin said, there are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks when decades happen. Let that sink in for a moment because I want to push it a little farther right? I think there are days when decades happen. We had a few of those in 2020 and even now at the beginning of 2021. The day we heard the news about an invisible virus called COVID-19, uh, we didn't know what it was at the time or how dangerous it was, but it was a day that decades happened. Almost a century happened in that day. It was like everything shifted. What about the day we heard about George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, or the day RGB died, the day a woman was, uh, a woman of color was elected vice president, or the day an angry, angry mob stormed the Capitol? Listen, re regardless of race, religion, gender, political affiliation, uh, those are days, decades happened. Everything came together in, in an instant, and it shifts our mindset, the story that we allow ourselves to tell. Now, the same is true for each one of our lives. I'm believing that this is one of those series that will speak to the core of us that can change the trajectory of our life. When the Holy Spirit ignites something uh, with your faith that allows decades of growth to happen in an instant. That is possible. Destiny is not a mystery. Destiny is a decision. And you are one decision away from a totally different life. I'm ready to hit reset. <laughs> I am ready to gather again like the whole church coming under one roof and hugging some necks and, and speaking life to one another. I'm ready uh, whether it's herd immunity or whatever happens, uh, so that uh, things could get back to some form of normal, that kids would actually go to school, not just like visit it <laughs> right now, um, that we could go to a movie as a family, or I could do coffee with anyone, anywhere, at any time. Uh, I'm sure we all can, can feel that way. It's just having said that, I have to say this. You can't just flip the calendar. You have to flip the script. 
And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's the first of seven habits from this book, Win the Day. And the big idea is if you want to change your life, you have to change your story. You're going to have to change your story. Uh, we, we tend to think habits in, uh, about habits as external factors. We think about maybe more exercise or more training. We think about practicing more scales or learning new skills. And, and those external habits do pay dividends and, and no doubt that the 10,000 hours rule to become a master at anything exists. But the biggest returns on investment are internal habits. And that's what we're looking at. It, no one else can see it. Uh, it's your internal monologue. It's that the way that you explain experiences to yourself. It's the stories that you tell yourself day in and day out. In other words, um, or in the words of John Quincy Adams, he says, whoever tells the best story wins. Man, what if we could tell ourselves the best story? Every day, 60,000 thoughts fire across the synapses of our mind, right? And according to a study done by Cleveland Clinic, about 80% of those thoughts are negative. Wow, so I guess being an optimist does come across helpful in my self-talk. Maybe Proverbs 23, 7 says this, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. So is he. Your thoughts have a psychological and physiological effect. Your thoughts have the power to lower your blood pressure, uh, slow your pulse, boost your immunity, uh, do the exact opposite at any moment of any of those, right? The battle is won or lost in our mind. Very powerful thought. Either way, it's the stories you tell yourself that are more important than the situations you find yourself in. That's when and where we have to flip the script. And, and I will not tell myself that we've experienced great loss in this past year at Open Life. I will tell myself we've experienced the refiner's fire. And on the other side of the refiner's fire, you're more pure. I'll say we experienced a season of pruning. And why do you prune? So that you can bear a great harvest. We gotta flip the script. We gotta go back to, to understand what's happening in our life. And, and I, I wanna paint a picture through scripture. And it's through the life of Joseph. Uh, really this, the main backdrop is Genesis 50, 20. But before I, I read it, I wanna set the scene. Joseph was a teenager and he has this dream. He has this dream that his brother and his family are, are kneeling before. They're bowing down to him. And he makes the mistake as a teenager telling his brothers, one day you're going to bow down to me. And you can imagine that didn't go over well, but maybe you can't imagine how far they took the repercussion. They found a hole in a field and they faked Joseph's death. In fact, they pulled him out of that hole and sold him into slavery. And what happened to Joseph after that was just additional rough season of life that in no way, shape, or form aligned with this vision he shared 
with his family. Uh, he ended up being sold into slavery, thrown into prison by a false accusation, <laughs> a crime he did not commit. Then something happens. Jesus interprets a dream of the ruler of the land, Pharaoh. And the next thing you know, Pharaoh puts a signet ring on Joseph's finger and ends up making him the second in command of the entire land. And in 13 years, 13 long years after selling Joseph into slavery, his brothers come knocking. They come knocking because there was an amazing famine in the land. There were seven years of great harvest, of abundance, and then seven years of famine. And Joseph, the dream he interpreted was he saw that. And so he was able to encourage the people not to waste the harvest. And in fact, set aside enough food for the seven years of famine. And so his brothers walk in during this famine to request food. And in Genesis 43, 28, it says that's the moment where his brothers finally bowed down to him as this ruler before them that can give them food. And I can only imagine the feelings and the emotion that swept over Joseph in that moment. This vision that he had as a 17-year-old, 13 years earlier, uh, just had to overwhelm him. But one wrong turn after another, and it seemed that vision was so far away. Yet in a moment, right? A day, a decade happened. Joseph saw that vision become a reality right before him. Now, do not... Uh, give up the dream if you've had a dream in your heart for years and years and years. Uh, we just can't walk away from our God dreams that he gives us. I might make an observation right here. God, A God-ordained dream does not mean a life of peace and luxury. It sure didn't for Joseph. He had to go through one hard season after another to get to the space where God allowed this vision to become a reality. God gives us a dream and what we need to do is keep on our knees pursuing that dream. So what kind of story did Joseph tell himself? Genesis 50, 20, here's the goods. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good, he told his brothers. You brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Man, may we have this kind of 50-20 vision, right? This spiritual vision. Let me make this as simple as one, two, three. If we want to flip the script like Joseph did and keep our mindset that God is doing this for good, first, we have to know your name. Second, you have to fix your focus. And third, you have to change your story. Let's jump into it. You have to know your name more than a century ago. Charles Horton Cooley, founder of the American Society or Sociological Association said, I am not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Yeah, that's a tongue twister. Let me say that again. I am what I think you think I am. Reminds me of the Christmas movie. Let me help you, help you, help me, help me, help you, help you, help me. It was like 
Santa Claus 2 or 3 or something like that. But I look at this and go, what a tongue twister. But the reality here is true, as Cooley called this the looking glass self. And it's basing our sense of self on how we believe others see us, right? Our sense of self comes from a lot of different sources. And here's the irony. Sometimes it's something as simple as someone saying, you're good at that, or you're bad at that, uh, that can guide us for forever. Uh, we buy into it and it becomes this script for our life. Well, either way, it's letting people narrate your story for good or bad. It's living your life according to their expectations. And it's so critical that we take our cues from Scripture. That the Scripture is our script. <laughs> Mark Batterson says it's our script cure, right? Uh, the book of James we've been studying in our group says that the Bible is like a mirror. We should look in it and see who we truly are and not walk away from that mirror forgetting what we've seen. This is where we discover who we are in the eyes of God, is in the scriptures. This is how we know our name. This is how we flip our script. And we need to look into it as a clear mirror. Let me dive back into this story. Joseph, he plays a few mind games on his brothers in between the moment he sees them bow before him and when we get to Genesis 50. 20 and I don't blame him would you I mean after all those years he's he's messing with them a bit but he finally reveals his identity in Genesis 45 and he says this I am Joseph okay Thad that's yeah that's nothing fancy but it kind of is Joseph knows his name still and of course he knows his name, but no, it's not that simple. When Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command years earlier, he doesn't just give him the signet ring. He gives him an Egyptian name, which was Zephanath Paneah. Try to spell that right on your birth certificate over and over again. I look at that alter ego that he was given. And although it was much harder to spell, he does not say that that's his name to his brothers. And I think it would have been so easy for Joseph to forget who he was. That was, that was then, this is now. Years later, half his life later. But he doesn't. He remembers his name. And when tough times hit, sometimes we forget who we are. But that's the moment that you, you've got to remember your name. You've got to dig deep and figure out what your name is. Listen, the same thing happens to Daniel. Uh, I don't know if you've read that, but Nebuchadnezzar calls him Belteshazzar. Say Worcester. Worcestershire sauce, right? Uh, he gives him that name, and that's not his name. His name is Daniel. On the flip side, Jesus changes people's names as well. Simon, which means blowing reed. He changes his name to Peter, which means rock. You know, uh, Saul is given the name Paul, turning their story upside down for the win. And I look at this habit, 
that God has in giving us a new name. And if you're stuck in a legacy of a name you feel you've been labeled with, it's time that you allow God to flip the script. Um, he's got a new name awaiting. And as you dive into scripture, you see who you are in that mirror. It'll help you know who you are. You have to know who you are in the eyes of the Lord. You have to know whose you are. And you have to know your name. Thought two, you have to fix your focus. You have to fix your focus. Your focus determines your reality. And, and Paul he says it simply in Philippians 4.8. He says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Why? Because it fixes you. <laughs> if you're looking for an excuse, you'll always find it. If you're looking for something to be grateful for, You'll always find that as well. What are you focused on? Now, there's a concept in, in psychology called cognitive appraisal or reappraisal. It's telling yourself a different story about what's happening. And, and I think Joseph is exhibit A. He could have so easily played the victim card. Man, I was sold by my brothers. I was falsely accused. But he doesn't play that card. I bet he could have played God and even, even the score with his brothers and sent him home without food. But he doesn't because he had a God's eye view of his story. Dr. Martin Seligman says uh, uh, he calls this case explanatory style. Uh, here's what he said about it. Explanatory style is the manner in which you habitually explain to yourself why events happen. Again, I'm an optimist, so I come up with usually the better side of the story, right? Your explanations are more important than your experiences. Where's your focus? Okay, so that's uh, that was Joseph's explanatory, or what was Joseph's explanatory style? I think, I think we have it right here in, in Genesis 50, 20, when he's just telling everybody, you intended this for harm? But you know what? That's not the true story. There was an understory happening here, maybe a meta-narrative, if you will. You intended to harm me, but God, but God, but God intended it for good. God's writing a different story out of your circumstances. Do you know what it is? How do we fix our focus? Man, I'll give you a short answer. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. I love the moment when Peter gets out of the boat in the night storm. Jesus is walking on the water, Sea of Galilee, and... Uh, he takes a few steps, right, before he loses his focus. And he begins to sink, and Jesus saves him, confronts him. But he took a few steps when he was fixed on Jesus. Three things you can do to fix your focus. I'll make these quick, but I want to challenge you to put at least one of them into practice for the rest of the year, like day at a time. Uh, just grab one and run with it. The first thing that you can do to fix your focus is keep a gratitude journal. Start to just write down what you're grateful 
for. Allow God to show you things that you can appreciate and say thank you to God for, not just in your prayer life, but like write it down, declare, I'm grateful for this that he is doing. The more we can put our mind on things that we could be thankful for, the less we're going to worry, the less we're going to be anxious and focus on the things that could go or are going wrong. Your gratitude determines your altitude, I think John Maxwell used to say. Let's become more grateful. Second thing here, number two, change of pace plus change of place equals change of perspective. I remember reading that in the Primal uh, book by Mark Batterson as well, and that kind of rocked me because he encouraged in that, uh, like just realizing it's great to have a routine, but once a routine becomes routine, we need to get ourselves a new routine because we're not gonna learn new things. So maybe you've been just highlighting your Bible and you version, but you haven't been underlining in a physical Bible. Maybe you need to go from an electronic Bible to a physical Bible, or maybe you've been reading the NIV and you need to do your devotions out of a New Living Translation. Change translations, change of pace, change of place, right? Uh, maybe for you, change the place you pray. Maybe for years, you've read your Bible and you've prayed in the same location. Or maybe you've yet to have a location. Change of place, right? Change the time of day you do your devotions with the Lord. Start getting something fresh involved so that it opens up additional parts of your mind and you can engage in a fresh way with your faith. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and hear his still small voice. And we've practiced it this week, but fasting, man, Fasting just changes up your normal rhythm and it takes that meal time and converts it to prayer and you begin to hear from and experience God in a greater way. Boy, that, that, that's one of the most incredible, phenomenal ways to flip the script. And three, read books. Read books. And I think we've really encouraged this and practiced this at Open Life. I'm excited about that. But something happens when you read, your mind is expanded. And for me, not only reading, I listen to podcasts as well. I just want my mind to be learning. I wanna be taking in new encouragement, new ideas, so that my mind can expand and never just grow calloused and hard and rutted, if you will. Underline, highlight, make notes, allow your mind to an expand. And I want to read the, the entry story here, something powerfully illustrating the value of reading books. Uh, it, it's, it's right here. It says, on August 22nd, 1851. So this just happened, right? Anyway, uh, Commodore John Cox Stevens and his six-man crew won the America's Cup in a 53-mile regatta around the Isle of White, I think is what it's called. Anyway, the race was witnessed by Queen Victoria, who reportedly asked which yacht was second. The infamous answer, ah, your majesty, there is no second. Thus began one of the most 
impressive winning streaks in history. The New York Yacht Club, of which Commodore Stevens was a founding member, successfully defended the cup, forget this, 132 years. They were undefeated until September 26, 1983, when the Australia II, skippered by John Bertrand, ended the longest winning streak in sporting history with a 41-second margin of victory. The win was a milestone moment for Australia, hailed like a national holiday, and even America <laughs> tipped its cap to the Australia II. It was awarded Athlete of the Year. Yeah, a boat was awarded Athlete of the Year by ABC's Wide World of Sports. And if you haven't tasted victory in 132 years, it's hard to imagine any outcome other than defeat. The first thing you need to do is convince yourself that winning is possible. How? And the answer is in this first habit, flip the script. Uh, you've got to rewrite your narrative by telling yourself a different story, a better story. So listen to how this happened. Several years before 1983 America's Cup, the Australian skipper Mike Fletcher had read the classic novel Jonathan Livingston Seagull. The moral of the story was begin by knowing that you have already arrived. Sounds like Stephen Covey's book, if you've ever read it, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he says, begin with the end in mind in his habits. Anyway, inspired by Seagal's storyline, Fletcher made a recording of the Australian team winning the race. The recording included narration and the sound of the sailboat cutting through the water. A copy of the recording was given to each member of the crew and they were instructed to listen to it twice a day. And they did this for three years. Every day for three years before even setting sail, they had won that race 2,190 times. How did Australian team bury a long losing streak? They flipped the flipping script, Mark Patterson says. They told themselves a different story over and over again. They won the race because they won the day 1,095 days in a row, all inspired by reading. Man, we can grow in ways we can't imagine. Final thought, have you you have to change your story. You have to change it. According to a study done by Emory University, the best predictor of a child's emotional well-being is not getting into a great school. It's not uh, giving them lots of hugs and kisses or shadowing over them and protecting them as a parent all the time. It's not the, the trips to Disney World or the movies you've seen from Pixar. According to the research, the number one indicator of emotional well-being of a child is knowing their family history. Knowing their family history. That's just kind of a, what, right? Uh, everyone is born into someone else's story. Our kids are born into our story. Dana and I, uh, for better or worse, our four kids are growing up with our story, which means they're going to inherit some of what I inherited from my parents' story and my grandparents' story and my great-grandparents' story. 
this family of origin, reality, and its influence on our life is something we work through and re-engage with married couples or merge with pre-married couples. It's important and it influences us. This is not just our mirror, right? Uh, Or should I say scripture needs to be our mirror, not our family origin story only. And that's what happens when we make a decision to come into relationship with Jesus. We get grafted into God's story. So now we have our origin story of our family, but then God makes us into this new creation and turns all that into redemptive fuel for our future. The scripture becomes our script again, right? And your life is the rest of your story. Man, you're the only Bible somebody's going to ever see or read. Potentially. You're the only grace they're going to experience. And I just wonder if, man, if your life is a translation of the Bible, is it a good translation? Is it easy to understand? Here's how it works. It starts by surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the perfecter and finisher of your faith. Give him complete control. And here's what happens. God begins his story, right? He makes history with his story in your life. It was a week much like this week where we fasted and prayed for our church that I sat in the auditorium at Eastridge uh, where I was on staff. It was an afternoon prayer meeting. And I'm reading scripture and praying during uh, one of the scheduled hours of prayer that we had as a team together. And I remember stumbling onto 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you've become so dear to us. And determined to let God be the author of my story in that moment, uh, I underlined and I highlighted that passage and And it resonated with who I was being and raised to be and was wanting to be. It was like my aspirations and my experience collided. And it was one of those decades in a day moments for me. And I said, this is my life verse. I'm going to live my life according to this. If I could do anything with my life, Lord, let me love so much. If I could do anything with the gospel, help it to come out of my life and not just be a task or an objective that I try to put into people. Let them be, let people be dear to me and my relationship's genuine. And listen, church is not a job for me. It's a calling. It's a sacrifice. It's, it does have tasks and responsibilities, but not for personal and selfish means of gain. Church is a is a sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, and I get to invest my life into it. Why do I say that? Well, this script, this one passage has guided me so much in my life, and it does mean that for me, church is personal. It's personal. It's not transactional. It's deeply personal, and if we're If we are the only means of the gospel to be known and and we're not sharing it with people or opening up our lives with people around us, then we're, we're off mission personally, like we're off script. 
The church is not to be used to cater to spiritual needs only. The church exists to be involved by bringing you the gospel and life upon life. It's a family. And in recent months, I mean, pull back the veil. <laughs> in recent months, as families have made choices to leave for various reasons, moving or switching churches because we're not meeting on Sundays or we wear masks, whatever it is, but a common phrase is shared. It's not personal. We just, and the explanation comes. And I got to just say open life is personal. <laughs> uh, I look at this and I go, my story is personal. If it wasn't that way, if, if church isn't personal for you, that needs to change. Like we're a family and we're shoulder to shoulder on a mission together to see 120,000 people in our region choose to follow Jesus. 552 people make a decision to be baptized because they have fresh faith. They're following Jesus. That's our story. That's the story we're writing and we're gonna do it together. I don't know. My script was flipped in that prayer meeting in that week of fasting and prayer. And I wanna walk that out. I wanna get back in line with that culturally with those pursuing Jesus around me. Man, when you open up a verse like that for your life, when you open up the Bible and you find a verse, any verse that speaks to your life, try living it out for a year and then give it another year, right? One day at a time, man, I'm gonna love people so much that I share not only the gospel of God, but my life as well. What's your verse? What story are you living out? Man, so let me just share what I feel like God is sharing to me. And I've mentioned it, but I believe that we have come out of a season of pruning and are entering a season of crazy fruitfulness. A harvest is ahead. And I'm gonna to continue to tell myself that story. <laughs> the, the irony, the, the real subplot of Joseph's life, right? Is that for 13 years, things went from bad to worse. And then in one day, God, did more in one moment by him just being faithful to interpreting a dream. Did more than most people experience in a thousand lifetimes. His, he went from prisoner to second in command. And God was working his plan. God was writing his story, right? And now for 13 years, it sure didn't seem like it was going to play out. But in a season of blessing, Joseph goes from prison to Pharaoh's palace. It's written in Amos 9.13 where it says, The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster, then they can be harvested. Then the terrace vineyards on the hill of Israel will drip with sweet wine. And isn't that what happened in the days of blessing under Joseph's leadership? He was able to collect all the food needed for another seven years. And Joseph wisely stored up the plenty I believe that we are coming into that same kind of a season of plenty, of fruitfulness. We've gone through the dry season and now we're going to be able to experience this decade of fruit in a moment. I have some good news. When you have a setback, <laughs> you don't need to take a step back because God is preparing your comeback. I just believe that for our future. 
That's what God was doing in Joseph's life. And I think that's what he wants to do in your life. But your action point is this. Your action thought is flip the script. Learn how to flip the script. You got to know your name, fix your focus, and you've got to change your story. And if you do that, you better buckle your seatbelt because I think God is going to write his story through you in such a way that decades could happen in an instant. Can I pray for you? God, I thank you for the opportunity we have to come and, and seek after you and be inspired. Thank you for the book Mark Batterson wrote that inspired us to dive into the scripture and see these parallels and understand, God, you do care about our story. And you want us to turn the negative self-talk and the absence of being present. You want us to just dive in and, and be able to know who we are. You want us to know our name, the name you are calling out upon us. God, you want us to fix our focus on your future, your preferred path for us, your plan, which you say is to prosper us, not to harm us. You know the plan for our future. And God, I pray that you would help us change our story. Maybe we're not excited with where we've come, but may we realign ourselves to the story you've spoken over us or change it completely, flip the script, and get back in line with the will you have for our life. We anticipate great harvest and fruitfulness ahead. I thank you for the opportunity we have to put our faith in you, Jesus. And if someone's watching this right now that is yet to put their faith in you, may they step over that line of faith right now and say, Jesus, I do want to choose you to be my Lord and Savior. I do want the scripture, the Bible, to be my script. I want to begin to know who I truly am in your eyes, God. And I pray that they may live life to the full like never before. Experience that peace of mind you promised us as they grow their relationship with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us for week one. Bless you, and we can't wait to be back next week.